Well, it's wonderful to be here with you, and I want to bring you the warm greetings from Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the Heritage Reformed Church, and I've been privileged to serve there now for 37 years, and uh, I'm sure their prayers are with us this evening as well. We're I don't know your senior pastor real well, but we have published one of his books, and uh, we're looking forward to doing more, and he's very gifted. I know he's a very close friend of Jordan Stone, or, or Jordan Stone's a very close friend of Sinclair Ferguson, as I am, so we got the connection through Sinclair, so I'm looking forward to getting to know Jordan much, much better in the future, and it was just wonderful uh, touching base with Mark and getting to know him a bit tonight. You're, you're blessed. You've got, to, you've got to respect your pastors, love them, encourage them. You know, there's an old Dutch saying that says, if you want the pastors to preach you full, you've got to pray them full. Amen. So pray, <laughs> pray much for your pastors. All right, let's turn to Luke 22. 24 through 34. I see you're using the uh, ESV, so you, I'll read it from page 882. I'm going to be preaching from verses 31 and 32, and uh, I'll be preaching that from the, the authorized version, because there are, there are some, well, that's what I do normally, but also because there's a few word changes I'll explain to you that that need to be mentioned here. Luke 22, 24, hear the word of God. A dispute also arose among them, that is the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we look to thee for benediction now as we seek to bring thy word and seek to show from thy word that thou dost meet our every need as prophet, 
as priest and as king, so that we may go out in response to thee as prophets, priests, and kings in this needy and perishing world. Lord, let this sermon be eminently useful for every weary believer at this moment in his or her spiritual pilgrimage. Let it strengthen the strong and let it arrest the unsaved and graciously grant that the heavens would be rent tonight and that thou wouldst pour out thy spirit and do a mighty work through this sermon, being that thy Holy Spirit has promised to take thy word and bring it home to the hearts and lives of sinners and saints alike. Do it again, Lord. Fulfill thy own promise. Let not thy word return to thee void or vain. Do bless this flock. Bless the pastors, the elders, the deacons, all those who labor in various church ministries. Let thy kingdom come in them and through them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, dear church family, I was 16 years old when my brother, 19, walked into my bedroom one day and said, uh, I have uh, discovered what life is all about, and I can summarize it in one word. And I said, wow, one word, what's that? And my brother said, service. I said, what? Explain. Oh, he said, it's quite simple. God made us in the Garden of Eden to serve him, to serve each other, think Adam Eve, and to serve in a work capacity in keeping the garden, dressing it, and making it beautiful. But we fell, and we lost the concept of service. We became selfish. In Adam, we were prophets, priests, and kings. We had the image of God in knowledge, Prophets in knowledge, priests in righteousness, kings in holiness. But post-fall, we lost all of that. Yes, we have the image of God still in a wider kind of fallen sense. We're, we're not animals. We're not devils. But we lost the knowledge, righteousness, and holiness of being prophet, priest, and king. But when we are born again in Jesus, through him being our prophet to teach us our priest to sacrifice and intercede for us, our king to rule and guide us, we are restored in that prophetical, priestly, and kingly image, and then we have freedom to go out and be prophets, priests, and kings, to live to his honor and glory. So, life is all about service. And I said, well, yeah, that's, that sounds pretty good, brother. Now, 50-some years later, I'd say, wow, that sounds very good. And it's interesting that my brother's comment is actually reflected in the Heidelberg Catechism. You know, the Catechism has this long section of expounding the Apostles' Creed for the church. And then there's a section of expounding the names in the, of Jesus in the Apostles' Creed. It moves from one Lord's Day about Jesus to the next one about Christ, and then about Lord, and then about only begotten Son of God. But there's a strange question right in the middle of the discussion about Christ being named the Christ, the Anointed One, to be prophet, priest, and king for his people. It's this question. 
But why are you called to be a Christian? Well, wait a minute. We're talking about the names of Jesus. Ah, yes. But why are you called a Christian? A little Christ. Someone who's like Christ. You're not Christ, but someone who's like Christ. Why are you called a Christian? Answer. Because I am a member of Christ by faith. I've been born again in Christ, and he's the object of my faith. And thus I'm partaker of his anointing. I'm partaker of his anointing. Oh, my brother was onto something. That so, and here it comes, I may confess his name. That's our prophetical calling. And present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. That's my priestly calling. And also that with a free and good conscience, I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. That's my kingly calling. So yes, my life is to be a life of service to the glory of God, of to serve as prophet, priest, and king, but the only way I can get there is by knowing Jesus experientially, personally, intimately as my prophet, my priest, and my king because it's only out of him that I can respond to be prophet, priest, and king back to him and live this life for the purpose for which I was placed in this world. So my theme tonight is how Christ meets all our needs as office bearer in his triple office, prophet, priest, and king. And I want to expound that to you from verses 31 and 32 of Luke 22. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So our theme then, with God's help, is how Christ meets all our needs as office bearer. And I want to look at it in three thoughts. As prophetic admonisher, as priestly intercessor, and as kingly commissioner. Prophetic admonisher, priestly intercessor, kingly commissioner. Now Jesus spoke these words immediately after commemorating, instituting the very first Lord's Supper. The reading that I gave you, beginning in verse 24, is just tragic at the beginning. Imagine Jesus, he tells his disciples he's going to pour out his life for them, and he institutes the Lord's Supper, which are signs and seals of his sacrificial death for them, and they walk away from the supper, and what's the first thing they do? Look at verse 24. There was a strife among them, which of them should be counted the greatest. <laughs> the greatest? I mean, are you serious? That's what they talk about? No wonder Jesus said sometimes, how long must I be with you? But you see, we're, we're no better. We're no better. So often, Christ brings us the most sacred things. Your pastor can have a, a powerful, moving sermon that should just overwhelm you with its depth and its content and its gospel richness. And, and we can go out in the parking lot and talk about a, 
score of a ball game last week? Who's the greatest? You know, Jesus turns it around, though, and he says, I'm one here to serve you, and the greatest is the one who serves. What an object lesson. John 13, he washes their feet. He says, so you must wash one another's feet. You must be servants. Life is about service. You owe this to one another and to Jesus. But at the same time Jesus is talking to them, something else is going on in his mind. You see, as the omniscient prophet he knew that Satan was trying to promote division among the disciples. And he would soon go off and suffer in Gethsemane and Gabbatha and Golgotha and pour out his life. And Satan would take the opportunity to say, well, the shepherd is smitten and the sheep shall be scattered. So he wants to warn Simon Peter, who's the unspoken leader of the twelve. You know that. Every time the 12 are listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Simon Peter's name is always first. Simon Peter was just kind of a, a natural leader. It's just who he was. The problem was that it had gone to his head. And so he thought his faith was better than them all. He thought he loved Jesus more than them all. And he wasn't worried about falling. Even though Judas Iscariot would soon fall. He wasn't worried. The frightening truth is that the disciples were not aware of Christ's presence as they were arguing who was the greatest. The comforting truth is that Jesus was. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan wants to have you. And the you here, by the way, is plural. Plural. You see, somewhere along the line, the English language got sloppy. And, uh, you know, we dropped the the and the thou, the singular form. And now we have you, singular and plural. And so when you read most translations, like, like the ESV as well, you don't catch this. But actually, what Jesus says in the original Greek is Simon, Simon, Satan wants to have you, plural. He wants to all 12 of you. He wants to have you all. But I have prayed for thee, singular. Simon Peter, I'm interceding for you individually as the leader. What a lesson for Simon Peter. But Simon Peter still doesn't get it. He says in verse 34, uh, or verse 33, Lord, I, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and death. Don't worry about me, Lord. I, I, I'll, I'll stay steady. I'll stay steady for you. I'm not worried about falling. And you see, that's exactly Simon Peter's problem. He's thinking he can stand in his own strength. As soon as you think that as a Christian, you're already half to the ground. You're falling. You see, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan wants to have you. Now, boys and girls, I have something to say to you tonight. 
When your mom and dad warn you about something, never complain. Because they warn you in love. Your dad is like a prophet in the home. And your mom like, well, prophetess. And when they warn you about something, they're doing that because they love you. Because they love you. And they want to keep you from going the wrong way. Just like Jesus loved Peter here. Now when our children were about four, five years old, we live on a very busy road still today, and we drew a big white line across the driveway about 40 feet away from the road. And we took every child to that white line, got down on my knees, got eyeball to eyeball, and said, listen to me. Don't you ever, ever, ever cross this white line because you could go into the road and a car would hit you and you would die. Do you understand me? Yes, yes, Dad. Now, why did I do that? Because I love them and want them to live. And you see, what we forget so often is that the Bible has not just lots of warnings for unbelievers. It does. But it also has warnings for believers. A goodly number of them. And this is one of them right here. Because Satan wants everyone in this entire audience if you're a believer, he wants you even more because you're reflecting the image of Christ and he can no longer get at Christ because Christ is exalted in the heavens and is far more powerful than Satan. So he wants to get at those who love Christ. You are his number one target. And it begins with the leaders of the church. Simon, Simon, Satan wants to have you, the 12, the 12 leaders. You who are ministers, elders, deacons, Satan wants you. But he also wants you, young people, because you can give your whole life to the Lord. He wants you. He doesn't want to live you. He doesn't want you to live in the trajectory of living only and wholly and solely for God. Oh, no. He wants you to live for him. He's, he's upset that, he's, that you've, if you're a believer, that you've been taken out of his flock and transferred into the flock of God. And he's determined to get you back. So he's going to use every device to trip you up. Every device to get you to fall. Simon, Simon, behold. Now this is the third time in the book of Luke that Jesus uses the double naming. The double naming. As an admonition. You know the other two. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Martha, Martha. You know, when we raised our kids, I said to my son, Calvin, Calvin. He knew I meant business. But this time, there's a third. It's a triple admonition. Behold. Behold is a Greek word that means pay special attention. It's a triple warning. Simon, Simon, behold. A special emphasis here. There's grave concern here. There's tender affection here. 
Satan wants Simon Peter so badly because of his past usefulness, his potential value for the future. Actually, ministers of all the primary targets of Satan, ministers are number one. Because if, you can, if, if Satan can get a minister to fall, you realize how much damage that does? Sheep are scattered often. Tragedy results. Churches are split. Satan has declared jihad, holy war, against ministers of the gospel. John Calvin once said, The ministry is not an easy and indulgent exercise, but a hard and severe warfare where Satan is exerting all his power against us and moving every stone for our disturbance. Richard Baxter is even stronger. Satan knows what a rowdy he can make of the troops if he can make the leader fall before their eyes. If Satan can ensnare your feet, your hands, your tongue, and make you fall, your troops will scatter. Now, we ought not underestimate the power of Satan to trip us up. Satan can't get inside your mind and read all your thoughts. He's not omniscient like Jesus is. But he's very observant. And he's been observing people for thousands of years. He's been observing you for however many years you're alive. And he knows, don't kid yourself, just like your kids know you, he knows your weaknesses. He sees what you laugh at. He sees what you frown at. He sees what, what thrills you. He sees what bores you. He, he knows your appetite. Like a good fisherman, he baits his hook according to your appetite. He knows what tempts you and what doesn't. And he'll bring subtle temptations into your life, as well as violent assaults, to get you to fall at your weakest point. Now, I'm not a very good fisherman, but I'm a father, and so when my son was young, I thought, well, I'd better teach him how to fish. I do enough to know how to cast out a line, and I knew just about enough to put a worm on the end of a hook. I didn't know anything about other baits or anything like that. We were on a summer vacation. There were a lot of fishermen around. Nobody was catching anything. And I took my son out there and cast the line. I showed him how to do it. Had a worm on it. And lo and behold, the line was in the water one minute, and there was a pull. I'm reeling in, and I caught this beautiful fish. And all the other fishermen come running around me, and they go, you caught a walleye. I had no idea it was a walleye. <laughs> and they said, what did you use? And I said, well, a worm. <laughs> and, and the one guy looked at me and goes, you caught a walleye with a worm? I said, yeah, I did. <laughs> but you see, the problem, the problem is, in the areas of our weakness especially, Satan, Satan can conquer us if we don't walk closely with Christ with a measly little worm. I'm warning you tonight. I'm warning myself tonight. Satan wants you. And he wants to catch you and ensnare you and draw you in 
even if it's with a measly little worm, even the smallest of temptations. One of the old Puritans said, there's a spark of hell in every temptation. And every one of us, if we know our own weakness, we ought to grieve, we ought to grieve how, how we're such easy prey too often for Satan. But Peter, Peter brushes by all these warnings. He brushes by this triple warning. I'm ready to go with you, Lord, to prison and to death. Don't worry about me. You know, Satan wants to sift you, Jesus says. That's what he wants to do. He wants you in order to sift you as wheat. Now, what, what does that mean, to sift you as wheat? Well, in Bible times, a farmer's threshing floor contained both wheat and chaff, and they had to be separated from each other. And what he would do is he would uh, have an instrument called a sieve with a long handle, and at the, at, at the bottom of it was a, a broad scoop. And he'd scoop up the bottom of the threshing floor, shake it back and forth, then shake it up and down. As he shook it back and forth, the dust and dirt would fall to the threshing floor. As he shook it up and down, the straw and the chaff would come to the surface and like choke the wheat that was in the bottom of the sieve. See, that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to choke anything that might be of value, anything that might be of God, any work of the Holy Spirit that might be going on in you, he wants to choke it with straw and chaff. And so he wants to put us into his sieve. Whether it be the sieve of prosperity, whether it be the sieve of trial, whatever sieve it be, often sieves of trial or affliction, he wants to destroy us. Satan is no trivial enemy. He wants to sift us is wheat. He's cunning. He's resourceful. He can outwork us. He can outwit us. In his sieve, we learn more profoundly than ever that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In this sifting, we're not always what we ought to be. In Satan's sieve, Abraham said, Sarah is my sister. In Satan's sieve, Job first responded well, but two chapters later, he cursed the day he was born. In Satan's sieve, Jacob said, all these things are against me, when they were for him, all for him, all designed by God for his good. I think you know what I mean. When you're in the midst of trial, sometimes you can have your best spiritual moments in your entire life, when you cast yourself entirely upon the Lord. You learn more under the rod that strikes you than under the staff that comforts you. But there's other times when you're in affliction that you respond more like Abraham and Jacob and Job. Satan, you see, is clever. And he always seems to be one step ahead of us. So we need this prophetical admonition. It's the love of Jesus that gives it to us. He doesn't only teach us what we need to know but he also warns us in order to meet all our needs. I read some time ago a story of a watermelon farmer. Boys and girls, you like watermelon? Great big watermelon? This watermelon farmer had a whole patch of hundreds of watermelons, thousands. 
And uh, thieves kept coming at night. And he'd come back to his watermelon patch, and there would be five more watermelons stolen. So he put up a sign in the watermelon patch one night. He thought, I'll get, I'll get ahead of these thieves. Warning, one of these watermelons is poisoned. Well, for two weeks, there were no watermelon stolen. And then he comes out to the patch one day, and there's a sign beside his sign. It says, warning, two of these watermelons have been poisoned. He had to throw away his whole patch. You see, Satan is like that. You know, he comes in the front door of your heart, and you think you've kicked him out the front door, and he sneaks around through the back door. He wants you. He's not going to give up. He keeps, he's persistent. He wants you. You've got to watch and be careful. You've got to lean on Jesus and his strength and his teaching. He's got to be your prophet to out-teach Satan, to outwit Satan. You need Jesus as prophet to teach you, to warn you. Now, what a blessing that our text doesn't end at the end of verse 31. Thank God there's a verse 32. But, but, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. This is amazing. This is amazing. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Jesus is the great priest. As priest, he not only sacrifices for us his life, his blood, so that we might be saved, not only obeys the law for us as priest, so that we might have a right to eternal life, but he also intercedes for us and keeps our salvation alive moment by moment so that we may persevere to the end. I often say to my theological students, I believe that the intercession of Christ is the most underrated doctrine in all the Bible. So few sermons on it. But it's so rich. It's so glorious. You have a Savior, dear people of God, who's remembering you at the right hand of the Father every single second. Hebrews 7.25, he ever lives to make intercession for us. And so what Jesus does here is he, he, he countersues Satan. You know, the word that Satan uses for Satan desires to have you, to sift you as wheat, that word desires is the strongest possible Greek word. It means, it almost means like he's putting in a suit in heaven's courts. He's demanding you. He has a right to you, he thinks, because you're a sinner and God is holy. Sinners deserve hell. Satan, you see, thinks he has a right to Simon Peter. Simon Peter is a sinner. But now Jesus puts in a counterclaim over against Satan's claim. The counterclaim is, I want Simon Peter. Did you know you're a wanted people? Satan wants you and God wants you. You're really wanted. But you see, Jesus, Jesus puts in this counterclaim. And he has grounds to put on this counterclaim. Because he has been in Satan's sieve himself. Forty days in the wilderness. He never sinned. 
He came out of the sin, the sieve, sinless in Gethsemane, sinless in Gabbatha, sinless in Golgotha, sinless every moment of his 33-year-old life. And because he came out sinless, you see, he's merited the right to bring you through Satan's sieve so that Satan will not get the victory over you. And so at the right hand of the Father, he keeps you every moment, interceding for you every moment. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ who died, yea, is risen again, and is even now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. And so Jesus uses, in the Greek, the emphatic tense. You could best translate it this way. But I, I myself, but I, I myself, that's almighty. It's the almighty one speaking. He's God. Satan is only a fallen angel. Jesus is the great I am. He's got power over Satan. I Myself have prayed for thee individually for you, Simon Peter, that your faith fail not, that thy faith fail not, actually, singular again. So what Jesus is saying is something absolutely beautiful. This hour that's coming appears to be Satan's hour. He even says this: this is the hour of the power of darkness. Gethsemane, Gabbatha, Golgotha, the place of Satan's hour, the hour of Satan's evil co-workers at Gabbatha, the hour when all the powers of hell would be unleashed at Golgotha. And yet he says, I pray for every one of you disciples, individually, that your faith will not fail. Now this is fascinating. And so comforting, so comforting. You see, what Jesus does is he becomes the farmhand of his father. He entered into the threshing floor. He was tempted and tried and suffered. He was shaken back and forth and up and down. And he came out spotless. And now, in his intercession, you see, when Satan seems to strangle you with the chaff and the wheat. He's the father's farmhand who reaches in his hand and takes away the straw and blows away the chaff so that only the wheat abides. Only the wheat abides. And what does that mean? Well, it means simply this, that Satan loses and Christ wins the battle. And Christ will use Satan's temptations even and turn those temptations on their head and those trials on their head and will get the victory in you through his intercessory keeping work so that the very devices of Satan will also be among those things that are fulfilled in Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to them that love God. John Calvin says on this text something just amazing. He said, Christ makes it so that even Satan becomes a good physician for us. You say, what does he mean? Well, he means this, that Satan intends to destroy us, but the very means he uses to destroy us, Christ will overrule them for our good 
So that we will say as we look back, it was good for me to have been afflicted. It was good for me to have been in Satan's sieve. How would you feel, dear believer, if you never had any trials in your life? How mature would you be? How grown up would you be spiritually? We'd all be spoiled brats. We need affliction. We actually, in a sense, need Satan's temptations. Because we need Christ as our intercessor to plead for us, to overrule for us, to keep us in the palm of his hands so that our faith doesn't fail. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't say, Peter, I'm not going to pray for you that your self-righteousness won't fail or your supposed leadership ability over all the other 11 won't fail. I'm praying only one thing, Peter, that your faith won't fail. Faith. Why why doesn't he say love or why doesn't he say humility or what? Because faith is one object. That's Jesus. Faith is one object. That's Jesus. And you see what Jesus is saying I'm praying for you, Simon Peter. Yes. Actually, I'm praying for you that everything of you will fail and that you will learn to lean on me alone. Jesus actually wants to destroy our fleshly self-confidence, our fleshly expectation of an earthly kingdom, our fleshly holiness, our fleshly pride, our fleshly strength, our fleshly wisdom, our fleshly prayer, our fleshly self-righteousness. All of that self must fall as dust and dirt through the sieve. But the one thing that Satan cannot destroy, praise God, is he cannot destroy that noble grace we call faith that unites us to Jesus Christ. He cannot touch that bond of union by which Christ dwells in our heart. He cannot destroy that faith that works by love, produces hope, and is the heart of all true godliness. He cannot destroy that faith that cleaves and clings to the Lord, that cannot but love God, that hangs upon Christ and God's promises in him. That faith cannot ever be destroyed by Satan. Because I have prayed for thee, you individually, one by one, that your faith will not fail. Yes, you will fail. And yes, you will realize your weakness. Yes, through satanic sifting, under the permissive and governing guidance of God, we learn how weak and frail we are. Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. We are so weak in ourselves, we can't stand a moment. But that weakness, you see, forces us to cast ourselves upon our intercessory high priest to preserve us in the midst of the sea that we fear we're going to drown in. And that high priest will never fail us. Satan sifts to destroy the wheat and save the chaff in us. But Christ overrules so that the wheat is saved and the chaff is destroyed. He reaches into the sifting process. He removes the straw, blows away the chaff. He gains the victory over Satan. But I, I myself, have prayed for thee that thy faith will not fail. And then he turns to Peter. What does he say? When you are converted, that is, when you are repentant again, when you've been turned around again, 
When you stop looking at yourself, Peter, and you learn to rely on me as prophet, priest, meeting all your needs, strengthen your brethren. He gives Peter a kingly commission. A kingly commission. Jesus says, Satan is putting in a claim for you, Peter, into heaven's courts. I'm putting in a counterclaim on better grounds and better rights. I'll get the victory. I'll bring you to repentance again, Peter. And when I do, when I do, go out and be like a king and strengthen your brethren. This is a kingly commission. How do I know it's kingly? Because of the little declarative word, when, when. Jesus doesn't say, if you repent, Peter. Uh, by the way, Peter, I can't do it, and I'm standing helpless by. It's all up to you, Peter. It's all up to your free will. You have to repent on your own, and then, then I will come of it. No, 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 no. When thou art converted, I will do it, Peter. I will make you repent. And where there's a word of a king, there is power. It will happen, Peter, because you're my child from eternity past to eternity future. When thou art converted, go out and be a king, be a leader. I, I can use you better, Peter, when I, after I've broken you. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So what happens? Well, boys and girls, let me tell you another quick story. I have a brother with 13 children, and his wife is just a very special lady. She, she runs that household, well, we've often said two things, with strong, very strong love, and with strong, very strong discipline. I mean, the look in her eyes when she's upset, it's enough to knock a kid off his feet. But the look of love when she embraces is felt very deeply by each child. Well, one day I'm sitting in the living room, and the living room and the, the kitchen, the long kitchen table that, that can hold everybody, and the kitchen, it's all open. So a little boy comes in, he's maybe seven, eight years old, about five o'clock p.m. He knows, he knows he shouldn't have a cookie right before supper. And his whole body language shows that he knows that. He's sneaking in. He's looking at his mother who's in the kitchen. Her back is turned, her back is turned to him. And he slips up into a chair very quietly. He doesn't see me watching the whole thing. And of course, boys and girls, you know that mothers have eyes in the back of their head as well. And so as he's reaching for the cookie, all of a sudden she turns around. And she gives him one of those looks. And he just freezes. I mean, his hand freezes right above the cookies. And he pulls it back slowly, slowly, slips off the chair, and walks away. I'm looking, I go, this is incredible. She disciplined him, and, and there wasn't one word spoken between both of them. <laughs> but you know that Jesus did that same thing to Peter? You know that story, boys and girls? He's walking through the hall of Caiaphas. Peter's denying him three times, washing his hands. And suddenly Jesus, 
walks by and Peter looks up. Oh, there's Jesus. And Jesus gives him a look. But it wasn't just a look of discipline. It was a look of an incredible mixture. Peter, is it really true you don't know me? Is it really true, Peter? And in that look, there was a look of love. Yet I love you still. I love you still, Peter. One look. No words. And Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. Bitterly. And then Jesus comes back. Resurrected from the dead. And visits Simon Peter. A private visit. And you know what the Bible says about that private visit? Ten, ten post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Lots of detail in most of them. This visit, the Lord appeared to Simon. Period. Have you ever wondered why, why no detail here? It's too sacred for words. Jesus must have embraced him. and said, Simon Peter, I love you. I love you still. But I had to break you. You were standing too tall, Peter. You would, have, you, would have, you would have been very severe on those little lambs. And now that you've been broken, you see, Peter, feed my little lambs, feed my sheep, feed my mature sheep. Peter, you don't love me more than the rest of them all. You have to come to the lowest place. I had to break you, Peter, to use you. As one old Puritan put it, God will seldom use a man greatly until he has broken him deeply. To use us, God often has to break us so that we become servants in his hand, so that we become willing prophets and willing priests and willing kings to be used by him. Go out and strengthen your brethren. So what does Peter do? He goes out and strengthens the brethren. He declares the bitterness of sin in denying his master. He emphasizes the weakness of the flesh in the two epistles he wrote, First and Second Peter. He admonishes in those epistles about Satan's wiles and the need to watch and pray against them. How does he begin his first epistle once he gets past the greetings? We are kept, what? By the power of faith, faith that won't die, unto salvation. You see, Peter goes out and strengthens the brethren with the very things which strengthen him. And then he says, be aware of Satan, who goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But he also talks about the joy of restoration through the blood of Jesus in his epistles. And who is the leader in the book of Acts, together with Paul? Simon Peter. Yes, Simon Peter stumbles once or twice more in the book of Acts. But it's Simon Peter who stands up just weeks later, weeks later, on the day of Pentecost, and is the strong one, and preaches a sermon all about Jesus, and 3,000 people are saved. He strengthens the brethren in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ.
It's Simon Peter who says, be sober, be vigilant, vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. So you see, Jesus met all his needs as a prophet, warning him, teaching him, all his needs as a priest, sacrificing for him, interceding for him, all his needs as a king, conquering him, ruling him, guiding him. And that's what he does still today. He meets all our needs as prophet, priest, and king. So that, We will not just barely get saved and squeak by into heaven. No, no. So that we may go out and be prophets, priests, and kings to others. Confessing his name as a prophet, as the catechism says it. Being a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. Consecrated to him. Being a priestly intercessor for others. Guiding and leading others in the truths of the Bible. What about you? Are you a prophet? A priest? A king? A queen? To others? Are you guiding? Are you teaching? Are you modeling? Are you interceding? Are you living a life of service? Responding to the salvific service of Jesus that saves you and keeps you saved? Are you being a counselor to wanderers? Are you laying down your life for the good of others? Are you fleeing every day to Jesus as your prophet, your priest, your king? Are you defying Satan with the word of God, looking to Jesus? That's our calling, to be prophets, priests, and kings, to him who meets all our needs as our prophet, priest, and king. I want to close with an illustration for those of you who don't know Jesus, savingly who don't know what it means to lay down your life for him who laid down his life for you, who are yet unsaved because Christ is not number one in your life. He's not your savior, your Lord, your treasure. There was a chess champion, a world-renowned chess champion. He was going through art galleries in Europe and he came to this beautiful, well, rather, rather beautiful one way, ugly in another way, painting. And the painting's title was Checkmate. There's a picture of two people, an oil painting of two people playing a game of chess. One was Satan with the, with the horns and, and the whole bit. Obviously, this was Satan. The other was a, a young man who was biting his nails. And Satan was taking his queen and moving into what at first appeared to be a checkmate of the young man. It looked like the game was over. And maybe, maybe, maybe someone's here tonight. Maybe you're saying... I've heard so many sermons about Jesus and I'm still an unbeliever or I'm just a nominal believer. I don't really live for him. He's not my captain. I don't run my life by his commands. Oh, I warm the church pew. I do my own thing, however. I'm not under subjection to Jesus. And I'm afraid it's too late. I've done this my whole life. I just can't get into this Jesus thing that he's my everything, my savior, my Lord, my king. I want to live for me. And yet my conscience bothers me. I know, I know when I look at Christians around me that they have a happiness that I don't have. Well, I want to tell you something. That chess champion studied that painting for a good long while, and suddenly he shouted out in that empty room, 
There's a move you can make, young man. And you can checkmate Satan. And he saw, he saw an opening. Because Satan didn't have his king fully trapped where he could reverse him and checkmate Satan. And then he felt very foolish. Well, the young man can't hear me, of course. But you can hear me now if you're not in Christ. And I say to you now, there is a move you can make by the grace of God who's willing to give it to you to checkmate Satan. And that move is the old biblical move you've heard all your life. Repent of your sin. Come clean with God. Hold no secrets from him. He knows everything anyway. Tell him how bad you are. Tell him how good he is. Tell him you need the Savior. Repent and believe and throw yourself upon Christ alone for salvation. He will meet as prophet, as priest, as king, your every need. Don't rest until you too can save with Paul. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that we may treasure our prophet, priest, king, who meets our every need, even when we are overwhelmed, overwhelmed by sin, overwhelmed by busyness, overwhelmed by challenges, overwhelmed by afflictions. Lord, help us to take refuge to Thee and to experience that we will not drown in the sea of affliction, in the sea of overwhelmingness, but that Thou wilt take us as prophet, priest, and king and just lead us closer to Thee and keep us, keep us in the palm of Thy hand so that we may escape Satan's sieve and experience that we are bound to Thee Bound with that Christian liberty of knowing thee and loving thee and being thy willing servant to serve thee as prophet, as priest, and as king. O oh God, grant us this portion, we pray, to thy own honor and glory, to the good of others, and for the good of our own souls as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.